started thinking about the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. So any other Bibles, any other people there? Okay. Okay, great. Well, tonight we're going to be finishing off the uh, last of the plagues that God has sent on to Pharaoh and has sent upon the Egyptian people. And remember, God is really, with these plagues, really judging all these manufactured gods that Egypt uh, would worship. He's judging these gods, and in so many ways, he's judging Pharaoh in order to show him this one thing, like, there's only one God in town here, and Pharaoh, guess what? You're not it. It's, it is me. And that's what we see with God doing. And when you really stop to think about it, you come to know that Pharaoh really is a type of Satan. And Egypt really represents the world in which we all live. And so maybe think of it in this way. Think of it like this. Pharaoh was the god of Egypt. Pharaoh had supreme power in Egypt, except for, you know, that uh, uh, what, what was limited by God. Pharaoh was a liar. Pharaoh was a murderer. Pharaoh kept the people in bondage. Pharaoh hated God's word. All of these things are attributes of Satan. Pharaoh did not want to release the Jewish people. Pharaoh despised the people of God. Again, attributes of Satan. So tonight, we're going to be studying the cure to all that. We're going to be studying the Passover. You've heard that phrase. You probably know what that is. But tonight, we're going to dig a little bit deeper and try to verse by verse our way through this uh, chapters 11 and part of 12 as we discover a little more in depth of what the Passover is all about. Now, I was wondering if these guys could hit the timer up there. Chris, can you hit that timer so I can keep track of my time? So I, I do want to make a couple observations um, as we jump, before we jump, in, jump into the text. Thank you, sir. And uh, number one, the Passover marks the birth of the nation of Israel and, and, you know, and their freedom, their, their, their deliverance. But it also prophesies the birth of the church and the deliverance for all peoples of the world. And it was such an important story that the Jewish people were taught to tell the story over and over and over again for thousands and thousands of years. And in fact, the Jewish religion is replete with prayers and rituals that help to reinforce this idea of, of memory, of understanding, of, of digging in and, and talking about it over and over again. Their meals and, and their history and their calendar is set up in such a way that it was constantly coming up. And so it's such an important story for us to always remember. But the thing that gets me most excited as we're about to dig into these passages here is that the Passover really parallels it. It gives us the picture of Christ redeeming work on the cross at Calvary. And you'll see these parallels. You're going to see these analogies. So the greatest movement of God in the deliverance for His people back then was called the Exodus. And yet the greatest movement of God for the deliverance of His people today is the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so this section here is full of hints, it's full of prophecy, it's full of parallels, it's full of analogy as what is yet to come. And so we're going to jump right on in in chapter 11, be turning there. And we're going to try to hit as many of these parallels. You'll probably recognize them as they come along. I hope you do anyway, but let's go ahead and jump in because we want to get as much of this accomplished as we can. Verse 1, chapter 11. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague and I will bring, that I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. 
Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So look up here for a sec. Let's stop right there. Right here we find that God says, look, one more plague. Like this is the final judgment of all the ten plagues. This is the one that's going to turn their hearts. And understand that the plagues was really a declaration of war. Really was a declaration of war on the gods of Egypt. And I have a slide here. We're not going to go through all the different gods that they would worship, but every plague coincided with the god that they worshipped. For example, the Nile. They worshipped the god of the Nile because the Nile was the giver of life. So what does God do? He turns the, blood, or the water into blood to show His power, God's power over the river. They, 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 cows were sacred to the Egyptians and their, their sacred bull, Apis. So what does God do? He kills the cows. I know that uh, the plague of darkness really got their attention because the chief among all their gods was their sun god, the god of Ra. And they worship this god consistently. So what does God do? He blots out the sun for three days. All of these attacks made it clear that God Jehovah was the only true God. And it says here that after nine plagues that all the people, all the people, including the people in Pharaoh's court, the people who, were, who sided with Moses early on when he was still there, all the people who were on the fence, you know, the never Trumpers, I mean, the never Moses guys, you know, the guys who were like, remember the guys who said, would you want to kill me too? Those guys? It says all the people right here deeply esteemed Moses and his God. There was a respect here. There was a deep respect, like an attitude of don't mess with Moses and especially do not mess with his God. Now, the Egyptians, they respected strength. They respected power. That's why they respected Pharaoh. So they may have actually been bowing down, ready to worship Moses because of his strength, but the Hebrew people, they were attracted to the God. They were attracted to Lord Jehovah, and so they were drawn to Him. So when it says here, when He lets you go, He will surely drive you out from here completely. The Egyptians are thinking after nine plagues, look, we realize none of this is going to stop until these darn Hebrews are out of here. So He's saying, please let them go. We're begging you, let them go. In other words, don't let the door hit you on the, on the way out, Right? That's really what they're saying right here. And then in verse 4, Moses says, Thus says the Lord. Now, whenever you hear those words, thus says the Lord, that means it's a done deal. Like, it's going to happen, stamped complete, write it down. Thus says the Lord about midnight, I am going into the midst of Egypt. Now, let me just comment on that because before this night, Aaron and Moses went before the Lord and spoke on God's behalf. But right here, God's saying, look, I got this, guys. You guys get behind me now. I am going into your presence, and all the firstborn of the land shall die. This is a very strong statement. And he says, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, 
such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So quick question for you. So is every son going to die? No, what, what does it say? It says the firstborn son. The firstborn son all the way from Pharaoh, all the way on down to the slave girl, the, the slave girl who's behind the millstones, it says. It's a powerful statement. And I want you to realize that God had been putting Pharaoh in his place. He's like, you're the same to me. It doesn't matter what your status is, like Pharaoh, the greatest, the slave girl, the lowest. To me, you're all the same. You're just another one of the mill people. And Pharaoh, though, was considered a god in Egypt. So the people looked up to him, but God was like, you're just another person, another person. And I love this part where it says, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the slave girl, because apparently, even in the life of a slave, they had a hierarchy. You know, like you had some of the slaves who were maybe built and set up to build things, and some, they served in the Pharaoh's court or some made food, but the slave girl, the one job you didn't want to have was this one. They say slave girl, but it could have been a slave boy, was the one who spent hour after hour, day after day, grinding the grain into dust, into flour, into powder, and breathing all that powder in, it getting in your eyes, getting all dried out, your hands. I mean, can you imagine holding those stones and grinding hour after hour all the grain to feed Millions of people. It isn't like your job's ever done. From the greatest to the lowest person on the social scale. What a contrast. And then he throws in there, and even the cattle <laughs> will, won't escape. But this part here in verse 6, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall Never be again. You know what he's saying right there? He's saying, you will never cry more than you will tomorrow for what's going to happen tonight. He's saying, you will never cry more for what's going to happen tomorrow for the rest of your life. And it's so reflective. It's so parallel to what happened in Bethlehem when Herod sent his soldiers to kill the newborn babies. All the babies under two years old trying to kill Jesus, the real Lamb of God, so reflective of that. And during that time, the gospel records that Jeremiah had prophesied about this great day of mourning. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 17, they write of it. Then what happened, or then what had, hap had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Such powerful words were these, these words that helps us to understand the great sorrow of the death of a child. And you see the parallel that was this anguish in the time of Exodus and then brought into uh, the time of Jesus. But look at this other great contrast there in verse 7. 
It says, but against any sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark. So on one hand, you have this amazing great morning like there's never been before and there shall never be again. And on the other hand, you have God's people. And it says, but against any of the sons of Israel, not even a dog will, a dog will even bark. So do any of you have dogs? Do you have any yappy dogs? Like, like I have a new dog, fairly new. He's a uh, uh, Wheaton Terrorist or Terrier, and he's a yapper. And it, you could have any sound that goes off in the house that he doesn't recognize. You slam a cabinet, you open a door too loud, and he starts freaking out. Well, right here, this little verse, it speaks of the calm and the peace that's going to be on God's people, the people who live in Goshen, the Hebrew people. It speaks of the calm and the peace. What a huge contrast. Peace, protected, not even a dog is bark against man or beast, and great mourning and sorrow over here. It's pretty amazing when you think about it, but it says that so, all the, so that you may understand that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. He's like, I like the contrast. I set up the contrast so that the world would know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. It's a powerful statement as well, church, because look, we are different than the people in the world. And that's a good thing. And we don't need to get defensive or start worrying when we hear these things. Well, you Christians, you're so exclusive. You go, yeah, we are. Because God makes a distinction between us and the world. It's powerful. And then there in verse 8, as it concludes that section, he speaks of the servants of Pharaoh are going to come down to Moses and they're going to bow themselves before him and they're going to tell him, go out, you and all your people who follow you. And then he says, and I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Now right here, this, I want you to know that this is just a continuation of a conversation he concluded with in chapter 10. Like if you look at verse 28 in chapter 10, this is where Pharaoh says basically, get out of my face. Like the, if you ever see my face again, you will surely die. And then he concludes that chapter where Moses says, you're right. I shall never see you again. Well, this little section here at the beginning, mainly from verse 4 through 8, is sandwiched in between those two passages. So it begins where Pharaoh's like, look, get away, beware, do not, if you see my face again, in that day you're going to die. And Moses says, okay, thus saith the Lord. The Lord is going to come into your presence. The Lord is going to take the firstborn from Pharaoh all the way down to the slave girl who's at the millstone. The Lord is going to put a distinction between your people and my people. Your people are going to be in great mourning. My people are going to have peace and calm. That conversation is going on in between those two verses. And then, it, and then even up to the point where he says, and by the way, you're the people who worship you, they're going to bow down to me then. And it's then that Moses says, you're right. In fact, I shall never see your face again. And then concludes... And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So just to kind of help you with the timeline right there, that can get kind of confusing. So I kind of wanted to, uh, to clear that up, okay? So let's read on in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart 
and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. So understand here, it's, he's talking past tense. He's saying, look, Moses, even though we've given him every warning, we've given him the nine plagues, don't be surprised when he doesn't listen to you. God wasn't surprised. God knew this was part of the plan, that the whole thing was going to have to come to fulfillment. But he's telling Moses, don't take it personal. Don't be surprised when they don't listen to you. But can you imagine how Moses felt? He was like, God, I don't understand. Like, like guys, remember, he's from here. He had relationships here. He was there when Egypt was beautiful and wealthy and productive and, and was schooled there. And now it's completely ruined. Carcasses and rotted and stinky and really it's unhabitable. And I know he's just like, God, I don't get it. Like, we gave him every chance. You've shown him in every way. And there were relationships. Pharaoh was his stepbrother. He had relationships with people. Just absolutely could not understand what God was doing. Have you ever been there? You ever been in a place where, God, I just don't understand what's going on? We probably all have, right? Like, it could be a health issue or a job issue or financial issue, a relationship issue. It could be so many things where we go, God, I just, I don't get it. I, I don't know what's going on right now. But all I can tell you is some of these things we just may never find out this side of heaven. That's just, that's just a fact. Other things, it takes years and we can look back on our lives and go, now I, now I see why I went through that. Now that totally makes sense. I mean, so many things go through my mind. I could sit here for the next 30 minutes and give you personal examples. But Moses didn't understand really what was going on. Chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Now, right here, God is explaining to Moses like, hey, listen, we're starting over. We're going to begin a new thing. And this new thing is designed to help you to remember. And the mark of the new year, it says, the month shall be the beginning of the months for you. It's the mark of a new year. This mark is going to be a memorial. Again, to help you to remember. Now, the Jewish calendar is, is fascinating. You can Google it sometimes, and sometime, and you'll find out some amazing things about the Jewish calendar. I'm not going to spend much time on it, but only to say that the Jewish calendar has two different first months. It's like our calendar having two Januaries. I like to think of it as two separate calendars, that, but it isn't. It's one calendar. It's complicated, but part of the calendar celebrates the beginning of the new year, and part of the calendar marks the beginning of their country. Well, that isn't too unusual because even we, we have January 1, the new year, and we have 4th of July, celebrate our independence. Mexico, they have their new year. They have Cinco de Mayo, celebrates their independence day. So in my mind, it's two calendars, a, a Gregorian calendar that kind of keeps up with the entire world, like everyone else is on, and then they have this religious calendar that helps them to remind, uh, reminds them, I mean, uh, of all the different um, things that God said He needed them to remind them of. Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves. I want You should just underline that. They are each one 
to take a lamb for themselves. I want you to remember that. According to their father's households, a lamb for each household. So right here, he's saying, look, we're going to do a new thing. We're going to mark this month as the beginning of the year, but on the 10th of this month, when it comes around next year, because it's go time, we're going to, the Passover is happening tonight. We don't have time for the preparation for the Passover that I'm going to give you instruction in right now. But next year at this time, on the 10th, you are to do this. So technically, the 10th marks the beginning of the Passover preparation, but the Passover itself doesn't begin until the 14th. So there's this four-day waiting period. The thing is, we don't know why there was this four-day waiting period. Maybe it was because he was testing their faith. I mean, think about the political environment. Pharaoh could have said, I'm sick of it. I'm tired. My land is destroyed. I'm tired of Moses. You know what? I'm not going to let your people go. Instead, I'm going to kill your people. And maybe he was testing them, their, their faith, and telling them to wait for four days. Maybe it was to establish discipline in their lives. Like, they were slaves. They probably had a little malnutrition going on. They probably didn't eat meat all the time. They would have been starving, and yet now they're to take a lamb for themselves, to have this, this lamb roast wandering around the kitchen for four days, you know, like Pavlov salivating, you know, like. But maybe it was to establish discipline, like some delayed gratification. But for me, I personally, I think the four days were really to observe and to examine the Passover lamb to see if it qualifies. Kind of like you set it apart, you watch it, like quarantine. Like what's going on right now. Like you quarantine the coronavirus people to see if any symptoms come on with some time. I believe that's probably what it was. But it says they are to take a lamb for themselves. The lamb is needed. It's the key to this whole section, chapters 11 through 13. It's the lamb of God. Again, one more plague, God said. He said, look, my patience has run out. This judgment is at hand. But check this out. I think most people miss this. Notice that the death of the firstborn was to come to all the firstborn, everybody, from Pharaoh, the Egyptians, to the slave girls at the mill, the Hebrews. Death of the firstborn was to come to everybody unless you were protected by the blood of the Lamb. And God had given instructions for His people how to be protected by the blood of the Lamb. Look, the Bible says all have sinned. Romans 3.23, the Bible says for the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. I think what the Bible really wants us all to understand is that all people on this planet, we all represent the firstborn because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death until we are twice born or born again. Born again through the blood of the Lamb, of Christ. You see how it's all weaving together and these parallels, these connections are all fitting together. The Lamb is needed. 
And they are to take a lamb for themselves too. It's more intimate than, than it means just grab them by the scruff. You're going to see in a minute what I'm talking about. Verse 4, now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. So there was to, to be no waste. So if you were in a home, just you or maybe your spouse, just two of you, you were to take a lamb and share it with your closest neighbor. So there was to be no waste. Your lamb shall be unblemished, male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, the lamb of God. The lamb was needed, and right here we find that the lamb is chosen. And it's to be chosen on the 10th day. It's to be set aside, quarantined, if you will. And then, on the evening between the 14th and the 15th, the lamb is to be slain. But the lamb, again, had to be unblemished, perfect, no signs of illness. It couldn't be an ordinary lamb. It couldn't be a lame lamb. Because what kind of sacrifice would that have been? Like, the thing was going to die already. So it had to be a perfect sacrifice. And so the words of Peter that he writes really strike to the heart of the matter in 1 Peter chapter 1. Speaking of our salvation, he wrote, he wrote knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. He says, the Lamb was foreknown. He was set apart from the beginning of the world, from the foundation of the world. Church, look, Passover, it marks the beginning of the religious year for the Jews. But the death of the Lamb makes a new beginning. And in the same way, the death of Christ makes a new beginning for every believing sinner. And I say sinner because we're all sinners. But He makes a way for us. In verse 6, it says, You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Speaking of the Lamb. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they should take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Now, I want to spend a minute or two on this section. And it can get quite challenging. I mean, I've wrestled with this. Look, the thing that is going to save them was the death of the Lamb. God is, is showing them that as Passover begins, the lamb must die so that, so that the blood of the lamb can be applied. The difference between life and death for the people wasn't just the death of the lamb. It was the application of the lamb. Do you see the picture that's being painted here? Do you see it? The application of the Lamb. And so I, look, I always want to be a pastor full of grace and truth. But I want to speak plainly here. Here's some truth. I'm not like head over heels, 
fallen on the ground, excited. Oh, praise the Lord when someone comes up to me and says, I believe in God. And they could say they've been a believer in our church for a long time or another church, or they could say, I just found him. I'm not so excited. I'm not super impressed by that, to be honest with you. I'm like, okay, it's a good start. But I've got some questions that I'd like to ask. Look, the death of the Lamb should make it easy to believe. I mean, most people would never die for somebody they love, let alone somebody who doesn't deserve it and they don't know. That has to be deity to see what Jesus did on the cross. It should be easy for anyone to believe when you see what He did for people who don't deserve it. The wages of sin, what we've done, what we've earned is death. The, The first disciples... When they saw his death, they were cowards. And they saw his resurrection, they're ready to be martyrs. It should be easy to believe in the death of Jesus Christ. But not just recognizing that Jesus died or what Jesus did on that day is enough. Not just because, look, some people could say, look, I recognize that Jesus died on the cross. Look, I admit that. Cool. That's a great start. That's not what I'm asking. There is a name for that. It's called universalism. Did you know that? That's a belief that everyone in the world is saved, no matter what they believe, who they worship, or what they do, because Jesus Christ died on the cross. It's called universalism. But the Bible says, to those who received Him, there's an application process. Remember I told you, remember those words. They are to take the lamb for themselves. They're to receive him. They are to apply the blood of Christ upon themselves. That's what saves you, the application. Have you applied the blood of Christ to the doorposts of your heart? Church, it's a good question. A question that takes it to a whole level, new level of conviction. And let me also say, look, I don't judge it, right? I, I don't have to. You're not accountable to me. You're accountable to God. In fact, Hebrews 4 says, it's God's word that judges the thoughts and attitudes of your hearts. It says that nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight, that everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. You're not accountable to me, but it's convicting, it's real, and we are to remember. In verse 8, he goes on and he says, They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread. And that means no yeast. That means, see, yeast represented sin. And so you're just to eat the bread without the yeast, meaning us without sin, but then there's the thing, it says, in bitter, bitter herbs. I go, wait, 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 wait. How That doesn't make sense to me because how weird is it you make this amazing roasted lamb dinner, you have all that wonderful hot fresh bread, and then you eat it with bitter herbs. I, for me, I'm like, where's the salt? You know, Give me the pepper. But it says bitter herbs, but there was a reason for it. God 
wanted us to always remember the bitterness of our bondage. He wanted them to remember the bitterness of their slavery. Us, we're slaves to sin. So He's speaking to us as well. And it's amazing to me how quickly they forgot the bitterness of their bondage. That's why God had to reinforce this. It's part of the meal that they still do today, the Seder meal. It's part of the same thing. Remember, they're, they're not in the wilderness that long. They're wandering around the wilderness and they start screaming for food and God provides manna. Then the next thing it's, now I want meat. And God says, well, I'll give you meat till it comes out your nose. And then before you know it, they're fantasizing about how great it was back home and how good the food was. But look, we're no different. We come to know the Lord and we're so excited we get baptized. It's like, oh Lord, praise you, the Lord. Thank you, God. It's a miracle. Like, if I can get saved, anyone can get saved. We say these things, right? And then time goes by and we begin to forget our first love. We find ourselves flirting with sin now. Start thinking back about, you know, we hear music that, that reminds us of the old days. It happens to me all the time. Or we see those pictures or Facebook and you go, no, yeah, I actually had it pretty good back then. You know, I kind of missed that time. Kind of missed that guy there on Facebook and we forget of the bondage, the bitterness of the bondage and how sin almost ruined our lives and how sin almost ruined our marriage or how sin almost destroyed your hearers, those closest to you. We start flirting with it, but God wants us to remember the bitterness of our bondage. And we all have it. In verse 9, he says, Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. See, this is simply saying, look, Jesus Christ is enough. There's nothing else after that. There's nothing left to do, paid in full, stamped complete. No leftovers. Now you shall eat it in this manner. And this is super interesting right here. You shall, now he tells them, he told them how to prepare for it, how to cook it. And now he's going to tell them how to eat it. You shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded. You know what that means? You know, they, they wore those long robes. If you have to do anything hastily, that'll, that'll slow you down. That'll block you up. He's saying you pull it up, you tie it around your waist. That's what he's talking about. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, with your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Wait, what? Like, it took me four days to prepare this meal, and now i got to slam it down as fast as I possibly can? Yes. God's given him an example. He's saying, look, you eat it as if deliverance is at hand, and it is. You eat and run. He's saying, look, you run into my grace. You run toward me. You don't look behind. It says, like, after you've received the lamb, we should be off and running. We should get about the, God, the Lord's business. We should receive Him with haste. When I say receive Him, it, it's more intimate. 
It's not like just grab the, the, the lamb by the scruff. It's like you ingest it. You ate him. It's more intimate. It's more personal. Intake of the Lord. He says you need to get right with God quickly is what he's saying here. You need to have the sandals of readiness already equipped on your feet when you receive him. Don't get tripped up. Don't lose your balance. Stand strong. He says, look what happens if you don't. Verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God is just telling us, look, we need to shelter under the blood of the Lamb. It's, it's really clear. This is why they call it Passover, because the plague will pass over the house when it has been identified by the blood of the Lamb. It's all about the Lamb right here. You need the Lamb. The Lamb was chosen. The Lamb was slain. And then you receive, you eat. The Lamb. This whole section is about the Lamb of God. Who what? Who takes away the sins of the world. In verse 14, he, says, he goes on and says, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt, therefore... You shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is an alien or a native of the land, you shall not eat anything unleavened, in all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. So here I know it gets a little repetitive. As God gives Moses these instructions for the Passover, seven days, you're to eat this unleavened bread. It's called Passover week. But the thing I want to really point out here, because we've studied most of that already, is that it says on the first day, they are to remove the leaven from the house. It doesn't say don't use the yeast, don't use the leaven. It says remove it, get it out of the house. Why does God say remove the leaven from the house? Why does He say get it out of our homes? Because yeast is a picture of sin and corruption in the Bible. Mark 8 verse 15, Jesus said, watch out. Remember this? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. Corruption. A little yeast 
It works through the whole batch. You know how it works. It worked just a little bit, and it works through the whole batch of dough. A tiny little bit works through the batch, and then you let it settle well, and the dough swells up, right? So it is with sin. A little bit of sin corrupts the whole body, and it puffs up. Pride. Other things, Paul spoke of it. Look what he said in 1 Corinthians 5. He said, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, get it out of the house, so that you may be a new lump, just as Passover also has been sacrificed. This is intense. This is the connection between the old and the new. God is telling us, look, we, we must not live a life of unrepentant sin to get the yeast out of our houses, out of our lives. But sometimes... You will come across people who say, I'm not going to repent. They call themselves Christians. They'll just say, look, I know I'm in a willingly in a state of sin, but you know what? God is just going to have to forgive me. Or I'm just going to rely on God's grace. You know them. You know this happens. You've heard it. People just, you've talked with them and they're just, just the way it's going to be. God's just going to have to forgive me here. Look, you would need to encourage them as I do. Grace and mercy is for the repentant. To be a born-again Christian and to continue to live in sin is a lie. It, it, it doesn't work. It's not right. Don't do it. He says if they eat leaven during that time, what's to happen? Cut them off. Cut them out. They've been shown not to care. They've been shown, I don't fear God. They've been shown, I don't remember His deliverance in my life. He reminds them. Now, again, I'm talking about willing, unrepentant, lifetime sin here. I mean, I don't know the cutoff. He reminds them again of God's grace in verse 21 and following. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lentil and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of this house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this, this event as an ordinance for you and for your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt. And when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshiped. Now, again, I know this is repetitive because we've studied most of that. But he's reminding them of God's grace again. He's reminding them that you've been saved by the blood of the lamb. Never forget that. 
But there's something I think important that we should pay attention to in that section, and that's verse 26. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? Like, I wonder how many of us really take that to heart. Like, do you ever sit down or have you ever sat down with your children or maybe even your family and explained what your salvation means to you? Like, like a testimony for your family. And I'm talking about really getting open. I'm talking explaining the deep bondage that sin had in your life. And I'm not talking generalities. I'm talking like gut-wrenching, vulnerable, really being open, not just like, well, I used to be, I used to get drunk and I used to curse. No, I'm talking about what you did, how it affected, how it made you feel, and the consequences you're still feeling because of it today. Not just the obvious things, the sins of commission, but also the sins of omission, the, the sins of the heart. I'm talking about harbored hatred. I'm talking about envy, idolatry, unforgiveness with your children. And you go, well, I don't even know where to start with, with that. Uh, I'm not sure if I would remember all those things. Look, let me help you out. Just go to Galatians 5, verse 19 through 21. Go through that list, and I guarantee you'll have plenty to talk about. Because, see, look, church, I am convinced that you don't really appreciate your salvation until you understand your sin. So explain it to them. And then also explain to your children what communion stands for. Like, do you understand what this means? Do you know what this bread represents? Do you know what this juice represents? Because communion is to be done in the same way that the Passover was done for the Jews. A remembrance, a memorial, a reminder. That's why we talk about it we go, examine yourself. Paint the doorposts of your heart. And then we'll close with this last verse here, verse 28. I think it's appropriate because it says, Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. God told them to do it, and they did it. Again, it's a great place to end because I want you to be pondering that passage I just put up. I want you to be thinking that God isn't blowing hot air, that God expects us to obey, but the lamb needed, the lamb chosen, the lamb slain, the lamb received or eaten. Next week, we're going to talk about the lamb trusted, the lamb honored, but look, the lamb of God. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I'm thankful for this evening. And Father, I just pray that the words that I expressed, Father, more than anything, were from your heart. I know what it did to me studying it. And I pray, Father, just out of the overflow of all the stuff that I wrestled with would have come out, if nothing else. I pray it was deeper, and I pray that people would examine. Father, and it would hit everybody in the specific way that you've intended. Thank you, Father, for each and every person here, people listening, for people who will hear. 
Would your spirit just work a miracle in reminding people and people being convicted by the teachings of the Passover? Help us to connect the dots, the parallels between then, the Exodus, and the redeeming work of the cross of Jesus Christ for all people today. Help, Father, as I continue on in the teaching to stay in your grace and stay in the lane that you have for me. Father, I pray that we would continue to be uh, excited about your word, no matter how difficult it may be. Father, we know you discipline those you love, and we love being your children. So be with us now, Lord. In Jesus we pray, amen.